the text this morning is the Beatitudes. But if I am completely honest with you, I have to tell you that I've been really wrestling all week with how to preach this passage this morning. I've been wrestling with this passage because even on its own, it's already just really confusing and easy to misinterpret or misuse. On one hand, I remember reading this passage and just feeling anxious, like, am I included in these blessings? Jesus is starting his ministry, so I, I hope I'm in. Um, or on the other hand, the Beatitudes also feel ripe for feeding a kind of dominant Christian persecution complex. And by that, I mean that it feels perfect for feeding a delusion of false weakness, of placing yourself as victim when you're really harming someone, while simultaneously strengthening a dominant definition of righteousness, which is really a self-defending and self-reinforcing moral supremacy. That's the primary way I've experienced people in America utilizing persecuted for righteousness on the account of Jesus. So the Beatitudes on their own are just confusing and tricky. But further this week, this week, the Beatitudes were honestly just hard for me to stomach. The Beatitudes this week have repelled me because, well, verse four seems to promote, let me share my screen. Um, share screen. Hopefully y'all can see that. Verse four seems to promote spiritual bypassing. Are you horrified and racked by grief at the violence that devours us when brother kills brother? Don't worry. Jesus says you're blessed and you will be comforted. It sounds like it's saying, calm down. You'll be okay. Your loss isn't that great and you'll feel better soon. But my question to that is how is comfort a blessing for mourners? Sure, comfort might make us feel better, but it doesn't bring back the dead. It cannot bring back stolen months and years of lives. How are the holes ripped by violence through our collective life blessed? And not only that, but over and over in the Beatitudes, there is this one small word that I've highlighted in green, Repeated, they will. Why are you blessed? Because of something that will happen in the future. Just wait. And when I see those words, I instantly hear the voice of Dr. King. Perhaps it is easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your brothers and sisters, when you are harried by day and haunted by night, living constantly at tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect next, plagued with inner fears and outer resentments, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. The promise of the Beatitudes of fulfillment being in the future and of rewards being in heaven should really make us wonder if Karl Marx's judgment on religion was right. Are the Beatitudes just an opiate of the masses? But the Beatitudes are 
like really important. Some of you may remember that it opens up the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus's longest and most detailed teaching recorded in all of the Gospels. So as those who gather each week because of the name of Jesus, we turn to ask how we are to understand the Beatitudes and what the scriptures have to teach us today. Imagine now that people are streaming to Jesus, this man who is bringing change first to the northern edges of the community. Can you imagine what it would be like to be Simon and Andrew? They've just been called, they've left their dad, and they're just so ready for something different. They're tired of seeing the world crushing their community. Can you imagine what it would feel like as Jesus starts to move throughout Galilee, proclaiming not the good news of another Roman conqueror who would bring about a peace that was really the crushing of their people and no peace at all, but this time it would be a Jewish Messiah. Finally, after a century, our people will be free. I can imagine them telling their friends, this man is named after Joshua, God who delivers. And it's wild. He is actually doing something. He knows we can't just take this all lying down. And I think it's finally time for the kingdom to be restored to Israel. And just wait till you see this Jesus. He's healing people who are sick, freeing them from demons, and people are coming from everywhere. And it was true. Something different was happening. From the beginning five chapters of the book of Matthew, the author is imaging Jesus to be the remembrance and fulfillment of the hopes of Israel. What do I mean by that? Well, just like Israel, Matthew's author has Jesus fleeing to Egypt for survival. Just like Moses, he narrowly avoids being killed as a child by the violence of Pharaoh and Herod. Just like Israel, he comes through the water and then is tempted in the wilderness. As Israel's leaders had been tempted time and time again to utilize their own power to provide and create security. And Matthew shows all these people of Israel responding, streaming in, longing for restoration, coming from every direction to follow this new Moses finally out of their exile. And just like Moses at Mount Sinai, Jesus goes up the mountain to teach his new disciples, Simon and Andrew and maybe a few others, in earshot of all who have gathered because they long for freedom. Jesus begins to teach them what this kingdom is like. I want to pause here and just to say that if we understand and read the story correctly up to this point, it rules out that this text is only or even primarily about our private spiritual lives. No such idea exists in the Gospel of Matthew. From the beginning, Matthew has set up this story as a political book. It is about the end of exile to Babylon, the end of foreign rule. This is about the ancient kingdom of heaven healing and restoring and liberating the people. It is the fulfillment of the hopes of the psalmists and the prophets that they have long been promised and sung and rehearsed. Into the darkness of suffering, a light has finally dawned. This Messiah, the final king, has come to heal the people and calls them to return for the kingdom of heaven is finally near. And to these people who have known generations of suffering, Jesus says this, 
This is a kingdom that belongs to the poor in spirit. The CEB actually translates it, the hopeless. To you who have been ground down by violence, who feel hopeless that anything will change, who have watched year after year as the violence seems to get worse and feel paralyzed because you both cannot settle for this being the way things are. You cannot give up wanting for more, needing another world, yet you feel powerless to change. You feel that unique impotence that breeds defeat and cynicism. For those of you who feel that hopelessness, the kingdom is yours. Later in the book of Matthew in chapters 10 and in 24, Jesus actually tells his disciples that the temple itself, God's house, would be destroyed. And by the time that Matthew wrote his gospel and probably right around the turn of the first century, that already had happened in the great and terrible Jewish-Roman War, 40 years after Jesus. But Jesus predicts this and warns them and tells them how to read the times, that the violence around them will get worse, and that many will stumble and begin to betray one another, that brother will turn against brother to death and father against son. And because of the increase of wickedness and lawlessness, the love of many will grow cold. But he calls for them to endure until the end. This is who the book of Matthew is addressed to. People are reading the Beatitudes after they have heard of the terrible violence that they had done to one another while sieged in Jerusalem. They would have remembered that they had scrambled against one another factions to consolidate power to resist Roman insurgents. And they devoured one another after six months of siege. Finally, spilling brothers against brothers' blood across the altar in the temple and the holy holies. See, they turned to violence to resist Rome, but the violence couldn't stop anything. In fact, it consumed everything. It is easy in those times and in these times for our love to grow cold. Because love makes us warm. Love makes us long for more. Love makes us hope all things for our loved ones. Love is painful when the world is violent. For me, this past week, I felt my own love growing cold because we've been here before but it seems like it's getting worse. Now elders are turning on communities. We've tried to push the needle forward and we've been here for generations, but we still need justice to live. Our communities need righteousness to flow on our streets. We need streets free of gun violence. We need education. We need food that isn't poisoned and water that isn't stolen. We need restored relationships with our earth and our neighbors, but have we made any progress towards righteousness and justice as a communal body? Love grows cold because it feels like we are stuck, having no other options, but still needing more options. If you have felt this way this past week, hear the words of Jesus this morning that say to you, you who are poor in spirit, 
You who are hopeless, you like the disciples at the end of Matthew 28 who still doubted, you, this kingdom is yours. It isn't yours because you have faith. It isn't yours because you have a plan. It isn't yours because you've been baptized or you have a political capital. If you are poor in spirit, if you are hopeless, the politics of this kingdom is yours. And it is the politics of this kingdom that will come into massive conflict with the existing powers. Remember, Jesus wasn't killed just because he took care of people's individual privatized spiritual lives. That really just makes no sense. Why would, why would they kill him? Rather, the scriptures remind us that the personal and the political are completely interwoven. They're not separate. What spirit we live by has material and economic impacts. For example, you may say, who would ever kill a kind pediatrician? But being a pediatrician that won't take a side in a war, healing a child no matter their background, can get you killed because that is political. Healing the wounded is political. Jesus was killed because he announced and enacted a kingdom so political and so destabilizing to lines of loyalty in the ways that it refused to conform to the violent logics of the world that he had to be killed. Here in the Beatitudes, what Jesus is doing is training his disciples in the ethics of the kingdom of heaven, teaching them what the politics that this kingdom of heaven produces. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually says, you will know a tree by its fruit. You will know a community by what it produces. That is what Jesus is doing here with the Beatitudes. He is teaching his disciples what kind of political fruit the kingdom of heaven will produce. You see, the wills of the Beatitude are not about a future that will never arrive. It is not about delaying justice to an otherworldly place. No, Jesus and John the Baptist were announcing that indeed the kingdom of heaven had come near in their bodies and was in their hearers' midst while still coming. Here, Jesus is laying out the imaginative architecture, the law of the kingdom of heaven, teaching his new disciples to be able to recognize it. And then in the next chapter of his sermon, to pray for it and participate in its insurgence into the kingdoms of the earth. But first, they had to be able to recognize it. And so do we. Jesus needs to rehabilitate our imaginations. Imagine him saying, Simon and Andrew, if you are announcing and enacting and embodying the kingdom of heaven, you will see that mourners are comforted in your midst. Doesn't give us directions on how that's going to happen. It just says it's going to happen. The poor in spirit, those who can't give up on hoping for more but are disappointed and doubtful, they will be drawn to you. The kingdom of heaven will be a strange political economy that distributes land not to the highest bidder, but entrusts the care of the land to the humble and meek who already intimately know our dependence on the earth. 
Simon and Andrew, look for the people and places that are already satisfying those who long for righteousness and justice. Form a people that resist cynicism and bitterness, but rather generously doles out mercy to one another. Where those who work tirelessly for real peace are honored as possessing God's very heart and inheritance. Jesus is teaching them how to see this kingdom of heaven amidst all the other kingdoms that rage all around. This is the promise of Psalm 2. This is the space that the kingdom of heaven creates, a place for people to flourish, these people to flourish. Now, I can imagine Simon or Andrew, as Jesus says these things to them on the mountain, um, detailing what the kingdom of heaven would be like. I can imagine them asking, okay, but like, bruh, do you like live in the real world, Jesus? This does not sound very practical. Do you know how powerful the powers actually are? How is the kingdom of heaven supposed to win? And how is the kingdom to be returned to us unless maybe you should say, blessed are the freedom fighters. They will never run out of ammunition or spirit. As if to make matters worse, Jesus in the verses that are following in his sermon continues and says, if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, then turn the other cheek also. The question that we have to struggle with and that the disciples who are being trained to rule this kingdom with Jesus had to struggle with was this, is the kingdom of heaven really powerful enough? Is it? Are we just wasting our time? Is it practical or just way too idealistic? What I think Jesus is doing here is teaching them that the problem with those violent powers isn't that they are too strong, but that they aren't strong enough. What Jesus, I think, here is teaching them and teaching us is about the actual nature of power that can bring about lasting change. You see, over and over in Israel's history, kings had been tempted to turn to military power, financial power, and political allegiances. Let me share this. You can see this um, in this piece of artwork. Over and over, this has been Israel's history with the kings. They've been offered ways to make themselves safe. And the book of the kings and the prophets remind us that they led to all kinds of idolatry, all kinds of worship of false gods that enslaved the people and demanded greater sacrifices of injustice. This is a piece of artwork of Mammon. These false gods enslaved people demanded all kinds of sacrifice to turn a blind eye to how they had to even sacrifice their own children. 
For any of you who have watched the recent Star Wars series, Andor, um, if you haven't, I'd highly recommend it because it's really good. I love this quote from it about the weakness of empires. The imperial need for control is so desperate because it is so unnatural. Tyranny requires constant effort. It breaks, it leaks. Authority like that is brittle. Oppression is the mask of fear. And this is true. Constant surveillance and policing is a kind of power, but it is a power that cannot exist forever because it is not true. Political consolidations of power only last as long as the interests of separate actors are aligned. These powers are tenuous, utilizing fear and death, mistaking the power of death as the most powerful. But it isn't because the scriptures all throughout the Old Testament teach us that the God who is alive turns those powers on themselves in the name of love. This power that seems so powerful does not and cannot and will not last. Truly, I tell you, those powers have already received their reward in full. But the power of the kingdom of heaven, it will endure. We, along with all the readers of Matthew, may be asking along with the disciples, so what do we do, Jesus, as the times spiral? What do we do as we can feel love growing cold all around us? As we see brother betray brother and elders betray their communities. What is this power that is supposedly stronger than death? What is this reward in heaven? For me, this past week, I have felt primarily tired and confused. Because I'm not sure what we're supposed to do. I'm frustrated by the cycle of seeing something terrible, being outraged, protesting, reading critical analysis, being so far removed away from things, life being so consumed with all that it requires of us and waiting for the next cycle that will surely come. All those pieces I think are, are good responses, but I can feel my own love growing cold. So what do we do? Um, I don't have anything earth changing for us to offer, but I think we can continue learning and living the kingdom of heaven. We can continue learning and living the story of God. The truth is that Jesus is not inaugurating something new. The Beatitudes are mostly picked from the Psalms and Isaiah 61. And the rest of his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is recapitulating the law and the prophets, the scriptures of Israel, 
against how they had come to be interpreted by the teachers of the time. He was teaching them their story. And when you learn the story of God through the scriptures of Israel, you will see that the thing that sets the people of God apart is that God, throughout the generations of Israel's history, God is just lavishly generous to them and calls them to just trust that generosity. God, for whatever reason, just loves this people, the children of a wandering Aramean an immigrant. God somehow seems to love the world, sending rain on the just and the unjust, the wicked and the righteous, gifting the world with all kinds of fertility and fruitfulness, all kinds of animals and plants and creatures and terrain. Israel's scripture testify to us that God is generous, trustworthy, Good. And I know that that is hard to believe with the powers that we see ruling today, but the story of Israel is a story of a God who doesn't just create the world out of love, but then chooses to ally God's self, particularly to the story of an enslaved people, freeing them through Moses and teaching them how to live peaceably amongst violent nations according to a good and just way that will not give up. A God who says, trust that you can stay on this peaceful way, for it births more and more abundance. Just trust it. The story of the people of God is not mission-oriented or rather outreach-oriented. So maybe many of us have been taught to think, but rather it is a people who is called to cultivate and enjoy the fruit, the good fruit of their community's inner life. Let me show you a quote from Isaiah 61. You can read that. The story of the people of God is one that is about enjoying the abundance that comes as God tends and cares for us. I know that's hard to believe. So that the Gentile nations around will see how much God had blessed them. And as they see, as the Gentile nations see, as the violent empires see that blessed life that will always persist, they of their own accord will reach out for God's way of peace. And in that reaching out, in that saying, would we be blessed by the God of Abraham? The blessing would begin to spill over and bless the rest of the world. That is the hope. That nations themselves would turn from violence because they have seen that violence is not strong enough to bring a lasting peace. I want to bring this sermon to a close today by showing us this video clip that grounds this all in a time and a place more familiar to us. It's a few minutes long and it's, it's a clip. It's from a documentary called American Revolutionary. Some of you may have seen it, um, The Evolution of Grace Lee Boggs. And I wanna show it to us because it models how to continue and what to do 
even in the midst of seemingly hopeless situations. And I want us to pay attention to how it teaches about the interrelatedness of the inner and outer life and about the endurance of hope. Um, so if you could just give me a thumbs up when you, if you can hear it when I hit play. No? Okay, let me try again. I, have to, I haven't done this in a while. Share computer sound. There we go. We love our neighborhood. We love our neighborhood. The drug wars was devastating. Everything else was dealing with the aftermath of that. How do you deal with people breaking into your home? How do you deal with murder on your street? You do a uh, demonstration in front of a, a dope house, you can do that. But we were getting to a point where we needed a picket sign inside of our heads and hearts. You know, sometimes when, when we're on the ground working in the field, people are up against some really um, hard um, condition. How do you... How do you prevent yourself from burnout? And um, how do you continue to feel like you could work with folks and continue to motivate them? I stayed involved because I've stayed in one place for the last 55 years. I think it's because I grew to love Detroit and to feel responsible for Detroit that I was able to grow. And trying one thing after another and trying to learn from everything that I try. And that's the only way. I mean, the, the illusion that there's a quick answer leads to burnout. As Grace struggled to understand the violence that was devastating her community, she returned to the evolving ideas of Malcolm and Martin. Malcolm really struggled and toward the end of his life began to be critical of black nationalism and went down to make common cause with King. After Malcolm was killed, I would attend these meetings and I would see young people, 14, 15, 16 year olds, getting up and limiting Malcolm to sort of be violence with violence. And I knew something was terribly wrong. Why is nonviolence such an important, not just a tactic, not just a strategy, but an important philosophy? because it respects the capacity of human beings to grow. Yeah. It gives them the opportunity to grow their souls. And we owe that to each other. And I, it'll take me a long time to learn that. All of you are clapping. I suggest you do some more thinking. Father, we come now. We pray to you. Let's all be down to this evening. But as I...
in a lot of ways, I have been feeling like that woman in the clip. How do we not get burnt out? I've been feeling that question of the disciples in Acts 1-6, when, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom? How long, O Lord? And the response from Grace Lee Boggs as she builds on King and Malcolm is to take a new view on time. To turn ourselves in our places for a future that we will never see. But we can bless and find ourselves blessed in the blessing. To let our love grow down into the earth beneath us and to the communities that we are planted in. And to take a view of change that comes by nonviolent and persistent love of heaven. Yes, violence promises change in an instance, and it is understandable why preaching nonviolence may seem like an opiate of the masses, but that violence is ultimately not powerful enough to bring about lasting peace, and peace is what we need. But God is still active in our world. The kingdom of heaven is still here and on the move. So Bethel, let us recognize the kingdom of heaven, which is here in our midst. Let us continue to sow mundane acts of love in faith. Let us create spaces, and not even primarily in church, where we say, you who are hopeless, we belong to each other. Let me sit with you in your morning and sit with me in mine. There is a day that is coming and it is already begun here between us, for heaven will not fail. Let us continue to hug our children, our future, tightly, cherishing both their laughter and their tantrums and pouring into them all of our love. Let us honor our elders with tenderness, both receiving their wisdom and gently pushing against their folly, resolutely weaving them into the fabric, the continued fabric of God's life. Bethel, the kingdom of God is here. Let us have faith that we live pursuing righteousness and justice in small ways, that as we do that, we are leavening our world with the kingdom of heaven, which lasts, which persists, and which will continue, so that many, many more might find the world blessed with lasting peace. Amen. Amen.